This is Family Office Intel at Denton's, a place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actual ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the modern family office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. The following is a conversation with Joel Wallenstrom. Joel is the CEO and President of Wicker and is a global information security expert. He's led top white hat hacker teams responding to some of the most uh, high-profile incidents in the past 20 years. During his tenure at Wicker, he has led the company from offering a free consumer product uh, to today offering a robust enterprise secure collaboration platform used by both Fortune 500 companies and top U.S. government organizations. Prior to Wicker, uh, Joel co-founded ISEC Partners, a leading information security research team that was later acquired by NCC Group. Joel also served as the Director of Strategic Alliances at Stake, one of the very first computer security companies eventually acquired by Symantec. His undergraduate degree is from Brown University and he's an MBA from the University of Denver. Today we'll talk about the evolving cybersecurity and privacy landscape and what that means for family offices. We'll touch on the history of the secure communication space and the future of privacy uh, protection and secure communication for family offices. So Joel, let's uh, let's get started here and, and, and talk about how you got into the security and privacy space. Hey, Ed, it's good to be here. Um, it was a pretty interesting path into security and privacy, and that was I was working as part of my master's program with a company called Customer Insight Company, which was really the early days of one-to-one marketing and what I would say is, you know, kind of anti-privacy. And um, at the end of the day, the company was mostly just uh, algorithm that would do one-to-one marketing. And it sort of clued me into the fact that there was going to be an awful lot of um, oversight or overstepping of bounds that pertain to consumer data. And it just attracted me to the the space. So I got, I was doing, um, my focus was on competitive intelligence and um, it caught the attention of a guy who was starting a company called At Stake. And he asked if I wanted to come over to the the not dark side and work on security and privacy. And it just kind of aligned with my value system. And I made the jump and I've been here ever since. Well, uh, speaking of that space, it seems like we can't go a week without hearing about a major privacy issue, uh, a leak of credentials or whatever it may be. What's going on out there? Uh, and and is, it getting, uh, is it getting worse or does it just seem like that? Well, I think it just seems like it's getting worse. Um, and what I mean by that is there's just more exposure of it. I think to a certain extent, we're all becoming a little bit numb to it um, because it is every day. And, and the reason is, you know, I, I'm not going to suggest there's any conspiracy here. It's just the way, uh, and I use the term loosely, engineering, um, you know, is exists these days is you have to get access to data. Things are, are built to be simple and fast. Um, and so time to market is the thing that governs all startups. I mean, I like to think Wicker is different. I certainly feel those pressures, but we, you know, we build from a zero knowledge foundation such that we can't mathematically make some of the mistakes that we see every day in the headlines. You know, it's just, there are no requirements. There is no regulation. There's no liability. It's kind of like, 
if people were building skyscrapers and there were no penalties for them to fall on people's heads, then we'd probably have a lot of skyscrapers falling on people's heads. Um, it's just engineering in that sense is very different than software engineering. So, you know, when, when the foundation, foundation of all the products we use is getting ready, easy access to data, then somebody with a adversarial bent is just going to use those processes to get access to the data. It's pretty simple. There's some movements uh, with some of the regulatory bodies, at least in the U.S., to to, to look at that. Do you see, do you think that maybe over the next five to ten years we'll we'll see some of those uh, regulations that that could help in, in areas like this, where there might be a just a standard that uh, companies and and other organizations should be looking at? I mean, there's lots of standards that are out there already. I'm sure you can recount all. Uh, all of the ones that you're very familiar with, but uh, you know, but what what does that really mean? So we can prevent those skyscrapers from falling. Yeah, there there are a couple you know different approaches, and so you talk about standards, and certainly we need to ingest bowls full of alphabet soup in order to satiate our customers. Um, so you're right, I am familiar with them. Um, I mean, my bias is this. There, it, it's very hard, and a lot of energy has gone into um, technical standards and suggesting that certain things should be configured a certain way or tested a certain way. But we're still in such a rapid phase of innovation that um, anytime somebody says this technology stack should be built a certain way, there'll be a new technology that sort of eats that, and you're back to square one. Same things goes with um, development languages. I mean, you know, on a very simple basis, we're not building anything in basic and that was the beginnings. I mean, for the most part, you have things like JavaScript that very likely you use that five to 10 year window may not be in existence. So it's really hard, I believe, for there to be technical standards. Um, my, my personal opinion is the you know we've seen GDPR in um, in the EU, and I think that that's that is a step forward. But you know right away most of its or a lot of the shortcomings were just highlighted in terms of best intent, but maybe not most effective regulation. Um, again, going back to my bias, I think the person that has to be impacted is the CFO, and if she doesn't see any risk to her job, her compensation longevity that I think there's not a whole lot that's going to be done in publicly traded companies to pay attention to this. So were there to be something that's effective, it's going to look a lot like Sarbanes-Oxley. Next five to 10 years, I think that might be optimistic. I'd I'd love for it to happen sooner, but um, you know, there's an awful lot of pressure coming from the other side of this ledger to say, you know, we don't want to swallow the pill that puts any, you know, somebody in our C-suite in real serious consequence if we're being lazy in our, um, in our development processes. It would have been, for instance, pretty punitive for someone like Solar Winds, right? And I think you made some good points about the difference between strategy and execution. Oftentimes there can be a, a chasm between saying, hey, thou sh- you know, you should look at this. Uh, and, and look into this and, and what the effectiveness that could that be, especially with the evolving landscape that you mentioned. Speaking of evolution, secure communication, I know an area that you spend a lot of time with has evolved tremendously. Where have you seen it kind of come across in the last 20 years? 
Well, at Wicker, we're, you know, our core is that we are something called end-to-end encrypted. Um, so that's a, that's a pretty big difference. And that really is a byproduct of, you know, something I think everyone is pretty familiar with, which is Moore's law. And that is, you know, just this simple truth that, I don't know, say 10 years ago, the power of the phone that was in our pocket is so different than what we have now. Um, and what I mean by that is when you do something called end-to-end encryption, that means that you're not relying on a central server to do the processing, which was completely impractical. You needed a big server on the end of those uh, communications to do all the encryption work. And now we have phones that can do that. So, you know, we've seen products like WhatsApp and Signal and Wicker emerge. And that's in since like 2012 is when it became really mathematically practical for there to be personal devices that could do all of the work of the central server. The reason this is important is, like I talked about, when when you have client-to-server um, computing, which is like Office 365 would be a good example, or Slack, something like that. Ultimately, every single device goes back to this central server that holds all the truth. And that server then calculates truth and sends it back out to the end devices, which makes that central server, the hacker, the adversaries, you know, dream. It's all the eggs in one basket, um, which was the only practical way to build anything that computers did. That was the only option we had up until really around 2012. And I'd say practically more like 2014, 15. So now that's not the case. We can push things back out to the edge and have a lot of that logic done on laptops or IoT nodes or phones, whatever the case may be. So, you know, we've seen this whole client server jellyfishing happening over history. And, you know, now is the beginning point of really what I think is a push out to the edge. It can be thought of as when people think of mesh networks where all these devices are gonna form the network. Well, in a similar f- fashion, we're going to be re- less reliant on that that central server to do all of the logic, and therefore there won't be one. You know, that's a that's a general computing reality that's coming our way from a from a security and a hacker's perspective. Now you have to go try and attack thousands of end devices rather than one central server. You uh, look into your crystal ball and what that would look like 10 to 20 years from now. Is is mesh the future? Are there things that are coming over the horizon that might even be more secure, given that compute power is going up, the way we look at exchanging information is changing? Uh, what, what do you think that looks like? Yeah, I think this the, the biggest thing about the future of computing is this idea of um, the change away from a central server. And so... You know, there's a there are real strong benefits to the privacy and security world because of this. There can be, um, but like like the you know security and privacy, unfortunately for someone who's dedicated their life to this practice, are not going to be the driving forces here. It'll be, you know, functionality, and I think most specifically artificial intelligence. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's a reach to say that AI is the, I don't know, kind of the, the undercurrent that's going to drive technology over the next five to 10 years. Now, the reality is, in my opinion, is that AI is going to be really 
supported dramatically by um, this movement out to the edge. Because a lot of the stuff we've talked about, like, you know, just in a very simple sense, advertisers, you know, want to sense a phone, you know, somebody searching for a cheeseburger as they're walking down the street and the local cheeseburger shop can serve up an ad. I think that's a very simple mental model for the type of thing that, that can and should be um, computed out at the edge, you know, very practically, why would um, that phone need to go back and hop through multiple networks and talk to a server and say, here's my location and then have that server look up, you know, cheeseburger shops and push it back down. That, that's, even though, you know, it's really miraculous how that can just take a minute for us in, in today's land of compute when everything's pushed out to the edge, it's going to be the milliseconds that we desire. And so that, I mean, that can be somebody who's hungry for a cheeseburger and somebody who's hungry to sell a cheeseburger, but it's also things like, you know, cars talking to buildings and all of the things that we expect with, you know, the explosion of IOT devices. If every single one of those devices out on the edge is required to go talk to a central server, then it's just, it's not going to be efficient. So, um, we're, you know, we're getting battery power and compute levels out at the edge that are strong enough that this stuff can be done without that central server. And so that's, that to me is just the, you know, a really big movement, um, in technology. There are obviously really big security and privacy implications, um, that are attached to that. One other thing that I'll bring up that is related but not is certainly quantum computing will be something that um, you know I when you bring up just going to ask you I was just going to yeah. ask you about quantum computing as being the the potential enemy to all of this. I don't know that it's um, it's often viewed as this binary state as though there will be a supercomputer that appears suddenly and you know, it rules all things, but, you know, just like anything else said, it'll, it'll be a gradual um, process to build that level of compute. And at the same time, cryptography is not a stagnant practice. So there are, you know, there are plenty of um, conversations I'm in, in fact, just before this call, that's talking about the way to harden cryptography and to be flexible to, um, you know, accommodate for what will be quantum computing. So I don't, I don't, you know, there's, there's not a, a stagnant state on either side, both of the, it'll be a little bit like an arms race is what I would say. So. Going back to some of the things that you mentioned about the, these, these recent public breaches, who, who, who do we turn to if, if they're those that are, we're, we're putting our faith in, in, in other areas that are pr- to protect these infrastructure, are they, they themselves getting, getting attacked how, how can people work around those types of issues the, the people that are helping us mine the store are, are getting robbed as well it's just you know one of the things that i always talk to my customers and employees about is it's still i mean it seems like we've been using we've come so far in terms of compute but you know i didn't have the internet when i was in college this is still a pretty new um industry and i think we're making great strides but we're still very immature and I think kind of infantile in understanding, um, you know, how computers work in general across large enterprise. And certainly because security and privacy came as a, as a kind of an afterthought, 
you know, this industry didn't really f- get any wind in its sails until like 2010. So we're, we're a decade into this, you know, really hard problem of trying to protect data and privacy. So that's not a very optimistic view. Um, I don't think we should anticipate a ton of progress um, until the big guys feel, um, you know, like there is a need and, you know, that next earnings report is going to be better for having secured data and, and, you know, built out and provided a secure product. Well, layering in the pandemic, you know, we're communicating and sitting thousands of miles away from each other. You used to have these great chats in the same room. What, what do you think this is going to look like from a privacy and secure communication um, world in a, as we come out of this pandemic environment? What, what is it going to look like in a post-pandemic world? Well, boy, if I had all the de- definitively correct answers, then, um, you know, I should probably be in the business of betting on companies, not necessarily securing data. But here, I'll give you my take on this. I, you know, I'm starting to feel the pressure. I'm having some more in-person, you know, some requests for travel. But I, I think most of the prognosticators and I would agree that there will be, you know, a a large percent of our work um, changed and remote. And so doing things remote will be at a higher premium. Um, when the pandemic hit, I mean, we saw the Pentagon say, we are going to reduce our security threshold so that people can practically do their jobs. And I think that was one of the most important signals and I think underappreciated signals to the market in general that, you know, the people who are dodging bullets made a statement saying, we've got a bunch of people on products and they're doing their jobs on products that we deem to be not secure, but we have to let them continue to be in a non-secure place or we're going to kind of grind to a halt. Um, Bit of a trade-off. Yeah, but I mean, you know, typically people who don't make that trade, right? So, um, and that might be actually, you know, something that I should feel responsible for because I, you know, if if we had wicker everywhere as the pandemic hit, we wouldn't have had to make that trade-off. But sadly, we're a relatively new product. Let's switch gears from tea leaves and and talk about what family offices are are looking at today, because I know you you work with uh, many of them and have talked to them over the years. It's, it's certainly no secret that wealthy families place a high priority on and on privacy and value it greatly. When you're talking to family offices, whether they're single or multi or whatever structure they may be in, how do they view secure communication and privacy in their eyes? Yeah, I mean. I think it's potentially the most complex user base because when we go into large, you know, 10,000 person deployments at big organizations, there might be a sort of a personal safety security element to what that large organization does, but it doesn't really get communicated to us. You know, there's, um, there's a security concern around general communication at those big organizations, but you know, each communication may not have, you know, lots of commas of dollars associated with, you know, each one of those communications. And so I guess what I'm saying is like the family office is almost like 
a diamond. It's, you know, the big organization is coal and the family office is so compressed. All the problems are kind of crystallized into one smaller ball. Um, and they have to deal with all of the issues. And typically at a budget that just is almost non-existent compared to a large organization. So it's a, for, for the, you know, when I talk to someone who's, you know, the CTO slash president slash COO slash head of marketing, I don't know, you know, carries multiple hats for the family office and they have to make technology decisions. It's a pretty hard thing. If you're putting your hat on in terms of the risk manager for a family office, you mentioned that they wear a lot of different hats. You, you talked about a couple of the problems that, that are, can arise, whether it's not having the right budget or having to do multiple, multiple jobs. What do you see as the highest security and privacy risk for a family office? Well, I mean, if I was going to be candid, I think it's whatever my boss determines is my biggest risk. Um, you know, uh, broad brushstrokes would be just like, you know, a CIO at a big company. I think that they may have a security and privacy belief, but ultimately their MBOs are the, you know, the real crown jewels are defined by the C-suite, the board, et cetera. So I think in a family office, there will oftentimes be a strong personality or personalities that are defining what's most important. So, um, you know, if somebody's private communications are intercepted and they're, they're leaked to the news, um, is that a bigger issue than business email compromise when somebody gets someone to transfer a million dollars to a, you know, a bank account that they don't, um, that they don't control or own. I think genuinely when I talk to family offices, there's a, there are different answers to that question. I don't think either of those are, are good outcomes, but you know, some cases it's the being in the public, um, you know, it, having made a security privacy mistake or having, you know, your kids in that light is, is the biggest risk. I think others are a little more pragmatic around, you know, just typical cybersecurity things. So that's the first time. I think we're all in job retention mode and you have to determine what the, the organization believes is the biggest issue. Um, still, this goes, this cuts across all industries. The biggest issue is reliance on email. You know, you're not going to secure your email. If there's somebody who wants to um, and has a, a, pro, a motive to attack your organization, email's not a good place for you to be doing things that are, um, that are important, secure, critical. I think where people are getting a pretty good pass right now, and I don't know where the regulators will be, and the thing that I would be concerned about is whether family offices are communicating on product when there is some sort of regulatory requirement for retention. Um, that's, I think, a pretty big deal and, uh, and something that I see the regulators sort of heating up on. And I think there needs to be a, there's been a, uh, you know, a hall pass on that for the last, say, 10 years. I think that hall pass is not going to last for another 10 years. You know, in terms of regulatory environment, have you seen anything in the U.S. or is it more outside the U.S. for maintaining some of those records uh, as they come along. Definitely in the U S I mean, you know, one of the, there's a product that's pretty prevalent in financial services called symphony. And when it was first released, um, I'm going to get the dates wrong, but a long time ago, you know, a decade at least uh, 
you know, SEC and New York Banking Commission came down on them really hard and said, you know, I think it was $6 million in fines saying, you know, you've got to put essentially a backdoor in your product so that we can get access to whatever is being said. Ultimately, that was aimed more at traders. Um, but that was, you know, from the get-go, this concept of end-to-end -end encryption has been something that the regulators have had their eyes on. You know, just last year, I don't, I'm not going to say the name of the bank. You're seeing individuals lose their jobs because they've used WhatsApp. Um, you know, there are rules against using these secure communication products. Uh, typically, because they're individual choices, the individuals bear the brunt of the regulators. But what we're seeing is, you know, there's going to be a shelf life for the regulators. Um, I don't know if it's turning a blind eye, but essentially saying, well, this is the 10th time individuals in your organization have used this thing and they've been held responsible. Um, you know, the 11th, it becomes the organization's responsibility. So um, that's, the, that's the movement that we're seeing is most of the consequence has been shouldered by the individual using but there's a, you know, there's, it's kind of coming where, where the regulators are starting to say, your organization has to have a point of view on this. And you can't just tell us that, you know, there's nothing you could do. All your, all your people are, are using this, um, this product outside of your control. There's a, there's a volume at which it becomes the organization's responsibility. So we talked about Wicker in, in terms of what it does in the abstract. So what is it? And how are you guys doing this in the private sector and in the public sector? Well, I mean, I think I've kind of laid a foundation for that answer in that, um, you know, Wicker started just like a Signal or WhatsApp. It was a consumer product. And um, when I was approached to come on board, it was to build something that was not a consumer product. So something that was good for small, medium-sized business all the way up to the largest enterprise and government customers. And so, you know, hitting on that, that regulation piece, the first thing, you know, that we, we did is we built functionality within the product to make the regulators happy. Um, you know, the, the hypothesis, which I still believe being that you can't really do something in the enterprise and do it knowingly in, in a way that, you know, regulators are going to be unhappy. Um, so that was the first differentiator and use case that was that was built into the product, um, which just essentially means that um, you can situationally retain things according to your information governance policies. Wicker never has access to anything, but we give our customers the ability to fine tune the product according to what their rules are, not not what our rules are. So. Um, you know, as, a, as I referenced Microsoft before, Microsoft, you know, has access to all the data that's being transmitted on their system. We just build a system where we have access to none of the data. And not because we promise that, it's because we have mathematical certainty around that. We can kind of prove that we have zero knowledge. So the customers that, you know, in terms of who's using it, it's, it's sort of... Um, it varies in commercial in that, you know, it, it is family offices are a good example or say like cryptocurrency companies or organizations that have a risk profile that's say different than somebody who really at the end of the day doesn't care that much about uh, information security. Uh, because of that, 
we have companies all over the world and across all different sectors. And we're really not a vertically focused product. We're a platform. So, um, you know, we have a lot of commercial companies. We also have a lot of government organizations here and abroad using our, our product. Um, pretty prevalent across the five eyes. And that makes sense because, you know, um, you know, the federal governments typically understand information security and they have a different, a very different risk profile, um, especially for those forward deployed. So there's, there's really no corner cutting when it comes to the safety of um, the data that's being transmitted that pertains to national security. So, you know, products like ours make a ton of sense. There's one very simple thing that we do that's different than say, you know, a consumer product also is that we give people the ability to provision and deprovision. So, you know, in a very simple form when you're, or in a very simple thought process is when, um, you know, we're all used to in companies, if somebody leaves the company, you kick them off email or you deprovision them from a technology. You can't really do that with consumer products, right? Like, and so, you know, we offer all those uh, capabilities to, you know, hook into single sign-on and do two-factor authentication and provision, and then of course deprovision when needed. So that's a that's a different thing. That's something that makes us pretty um, enterprisey, if you will, as well. Phil, let's uh, look back to when you got started in this this space versus today. What are some lessons learned that you had along the way that you, you'd wish had known you had known uh, when you got started that you'd certainly know today? the thing that was most interesting to me while I came in with a bias that people were going to prioritize speed and um, functionality over security, I I didn't realize exactly how laissez-faire most of the Fortune 500 is about this. There's still a, a, a real fear of like, oh, I know I can, I know I can secure everything, but I'm going to have to, I'm going to make people go through one more step. And that user experience is going to make me unpopular in the lunchroom. And, you know, that was always a joke that we knew to be the case, but, um, you know, until you're building a product and going out and, and working with customers, it's really kind of a, a shocking moment to understand exactly how little, um, influence data security and privacy have on purchasing decisions still to this day. Um, despite the fact, I mean, you brought up, it's in the headlines every day. Uh, it is a, it's an uphill battle. I mean, I really love this industry and I have respect for all the people who are working hard and trying to protect data. But the, you know, the practical reality is most people don't rank it high enough right now for it to be the number one decision maker on building a buying a technology it's typically you know what's the easiest thing to deploy and we can work on the security stuff later well thank you joel um, and thanks to all of you for listening in today if you'd like to get in touch with joel or you have any questions you can send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. And I'm sure you can find Joel on Wicker. Uh, if you enjoyed today's conversation or are so inclined, subscribe to the channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way that you can show your support. 
sign up for our newsletters, learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space, check out our website. That's dentons.com forward slash family office. That's it. Bye, everyone. Thank you.